Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Do you view your farm as a production space? A landscape that should generate X number of stems and X square feet for X amount of dollars each season. Many farmers do. In this episode, I want to encourage you to look at your farm as a whole ecosystem, a unique biome that is there to serve millions of lives, not just your own goals. Joining me for this conversation is Dr. Doug Tallamy, a professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology. For years, Dr. Doug Tallamy has studied how insects interact with plants and how those interactions impact the food web, right up to us human beings. He's authored several books, including my favorite, Nature's Best Hope. I've included a link to his work in the show notes. What I appreciate most about Doug's writing is his ability to make me feel like we are not without hope as we stare down the barrel of a sixth global extinction. He doesn't gloss over our stark reality, though. In fact, many of the statistics he shares in his books are gut-wrenching. But he maps out how we move forward and gives several outstanding examples in his writing of how nature, once given the opportunity, can quickly heal even the most horrendous wounds from gross abuse inflicted by human hands and machines. I am such a firm believer in the idea that our small flower farms can do big things for our earth if we combine our efforts and steward our farms as whole ecosystems. With nearly 50% of the earth's land being used for farming, every single farmer has to be part of the solution. We are the single biggest land use category on this planet. That's just mind-blowing sometimes when I think about it. And our practices as farmers have such a huge impact on our Earth's health. Some of the actionable steps that Doug and I talk about are to stop spraying pesticides of any kind, to plant native plants, to increase diversity of plants, particularly trees on your farm, to leave your weeds alone, and to stop manicuring your farm and let it go a little loose and wild. I know, I know, it sounds lazy and a little crazy, but it's really the only way forward. And having done this at my farm, I can say it makes farming a lot easier and more enjoyable. As you hear in this episode, planting native plants is the single best thing you can do to help restore balance at your farm and support birds and insect populations in particular. I've written an article about native plants for cut stems that's over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network, if you'd like to read it there. It includes 15 of my favorite tried and true native plants for cutting. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org. I've also included a direct link in the show notes. The Regenerative Flower Farmers Network is a vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer making valuable connections, and serving as a repository for articles and studies on regenerative practices. Membership in the network, which just costs $5 annually, 
also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here on No-Till Flowers. Join the ongoing conversation there about building our farm's ecosystems. One last note before we dive into this conversation with Doug. Please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening. It only takes a minute, and your review helps spread the word about this podcast and its important message so we can affect even more positive change for our Earth and our community. Many thank yous for doing that. Alrighty, here's Dr. Doug Tallamy. I love your books, Doug, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you're joining me today, so thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, let's dive right in because I've, I've got a lot of questions, as I always do. And I really want to help our listeners here at No-Till Flowers understand how their farms can be so much more than just a farm. You know, as farmers, we're often in this very sort of tunnel vision perspective that our farms are meant to produce a crop and we're going to sell that crop. And that is our whole mission in life. (laughs) That's what we were born to do. (laughs) But I think that the only way forward is really to start viewing our farms as ecosystems, whole ecosystems that serve many more individuals than just ourselves and just humanity. And your book, Nature's Best Hope, really drives that home, I feel like. that Of all your books, that's the one that really um, settled in with me most. And I wanted to just talk about that a little bit more. So let's talk specifically about how farming essentially... (laughs) you know, chewed up a bunch of available land on this planet and kind of took it out of commission for the rest of the world, you know, the rest of the creatures, how we're being selfish. So you do a great job in your book. Can you tell us a little bit more about how farming is is a little bit um, selfish, I guess? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I, won't word the word, I won't use the word selfish, mm. but... Um... It does take an enormous amount of land. Almost half of terrestrial Earth is dedicated to some form of agriculture. Mm. So in in this country, just for cropland, that is 410 million acres. And if you add add rangeland on top of that, that's another 770 million acres, which is four and a half times the size of Texas. Wow. Wow, that is a lot. And so um, it's a it's a lot of land. Yeah, yeah. So if we compare that to residential landscapes, that's 145 million acres. So it's not just farmers. It's not just ranchers. Mm. It's everybody <laughs> who's impacting the land has the same responsibility. Um, so I guess the message here is that is that farmers and ranchers don't get a buy just mm. because they're producing food. Mm. Um, we do, you know, people need to live someplace too. So everything we're doing is necessary, but we need to learn how to do it in a more ecologically friendly way if we want to have functions. And believe me, we do want to have functioning ecosystem because that's what keeps us alive on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. There's a quote in your book right at the beginning that really struck me. Um, I'll see if I can pull it up here and read it. Um, hopefully not botch it as I read it. But um, it's right in the introduction. And you say, in this book, I argue that we can no longer tolerate actions that degrade our local environment. There are simply too many of us for Earth to sustain the cumulative impact. A, nat- a neutral impact is not good good enough either, for we no longer have the option of leaving things in their current degraded state. We must now act collectively to put our ecosystems back together again. What is needed is nothing less than a cultural transformation. And that just, you know, that just rings true. It's kind of amazing, isn't yeah. it? 
I mean, we, we are in the middle of the sixth grade extinction. It is underway. Uh, and if it proceeds, we're going with it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so it's serious business. You know, we've lost 3 billion breeding birds in the last 50 years. We've got global insect decline. More than 50% of the insects of the planet are already gone. These are the things that run the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, you know, it doesn't seem serious to everybody because it's been so far under the radar we've felt so detached from nature for so long mm. that that you know the humans here nature someplace else is what our culture is right now and that's the part we have to change mm. it's got to be humans and nature in the same place we're going to coexist because humans are everywhere so um, <laughs> you know eo wilson just called for for uh, saving nature on half of planet earth mm, i read that yeah ecosystems on half of planet earth okay that's great in order to have life anywhere on planet earth uh, so we've got an awful lot of, of um, you know, human hardscape. We've paved over an area the size of Ohio in this oh country. Uh, and we're not going to immediately uh, turn that around. But it means the areas that, that we can comfortably put the plants that run our ecosystems back into the landscape. Uh, we, need to, we need to be doing that. What's curious to me is that there's no reason why we can't do that. It's mm. the only reason we have taken those plants away is the primary reason is for aesthetics. That's not a good reason to sink the planet. <laughs> it <laughs> so. really isn't. <laughs> yeah. You have so many statistics about lawn in your books, you know, lawns in your books as well. And it's just, yeah, it, it, it just blows my mind sometimes that we have, we even have lawns anymore. <laughs> you know, the problem is that, that we do things as individuals. Mm-hmm. So we see our action. This is what we ourselves did. But we, we're not considering that there are almost 8 billion of us now doing the same thing in different mm-hmm. places of the world. Mm-hmm. Somebody had an analogy. I'm never good with, with remembering names. But uh, our, our impact on the environment is watching a, a dripping pipe in your house. Each drip doesn't make a big big mm-hmm. difference but if mm-hmm. you if you go away for a week and let it drip the whole time you've ruined the entire house yeah because it adds up yeah so the really farmer does. you know out of that at 410 million acres he doesn't own 410 million acres he's got mm-hmm. one farm mm-hmm. but he's part of the of the aggregate and yeah. so i also say don't worry about the big picture because that is depressing it is just really. worry about your farm <laughs> you know what can you do and the piece of land that you own that can help yeah. And if you do that, you have done your job. And that's one thing I like about the book, Nature's Best Hope in particular, is that it doesn't feel so doomsday. I mean, it's very obvious that we are in the sixth extinction. So that I think we all realize that at this point. If if some listeners don't realize that, well, um, I think it'll become <laughs> evident very soon. But I do feel like most farmers are highly keenly aware of where our earth is at at this point because we're the ones on the front line battling the changes and trying to somehow still move forward in this sort of normal growth pattern that we used to know <laughs> that no longer exists. So uh, I do think farmers really uh, feel what's happening. And it is, 
It is depressing, frankly. There's so many times as a small farmer that, especially this spring, it's been so rough with up and downs and weather and, you know, standing in the middle of the field and suddenly there's a snow squall after it was just 70 degrees and sunny a minute before that. Mm. And you're just like, what is happening? And it can feel utterly overwhelming. But thanks to your writing and your research, it's very evident that if we all make small steps in the right direction, it also is a cumulative effect. You know, it's an aggregate effect. So we can we yes. can move back. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about for um, people that don't understand the concept of ecosystem services and what what does that term terminology mean and how does that apply in a in a landscape such as a farm? Well, ecosystem services are the life support that health the ecosystems provide. Uh, and we can, you know, if, if there are papers that will list a 50, 50 different things that ecosystems are doing for us. But, you know, the top ones are, first, we start with plants. They're the ones capturing the energy from the sun and turning it into food. So all of, all of the life on terrestrial Earth is driven by the fact that plants have turned sunlight into food. Well, you have to get that sunlight. You've got to get that food that's now stored in plants to animals or you have no animals. Mm-hmm. And not all plants do that. So you have to choose the right plants that are going to deliver that that uh, food. But supporting a healthy food web would be a, a you know, a, an essential ecosystem service. Um, producing oxygen. We need that. That's that's good. <laughs> Cleaning our water. You know, it rains and then it gets all muddy. Well, plants clean it and slow its journey to the sea where it's too too salty to use. They build topsoil. They hold that topsoil in place. If we had no plants, we'd have no soil. It would all be in the ocean, in in very short order. Um, they they uh, moderate severe weather. Believe it or not, mm. we're having mm-hmm. more and more of that. But um, they, they you know they they filter our all of our pollution mm-hmm. they're they're pulling the the extra nutrients that we put in the water out um that's part of cleaning our water i guess but it's a, but yeah. it's a really important yeah. you know that new york city had a choice of building a you know multi-billion dollar sewage treatment plant or water treatment plant or buying up uh, forests in the catskills hmm. and they did the math. It was cheaper to buy up forest in the Catskills, and now they're noted for having some of the cleanest water uh, on the planet wow. because it's delivered by an <laughs> ecosystem that is capturing the water and then filtering it. Wow, I didn't doing know a better that. job than that. Oh yes, that's yeah, <laughs> and that's one city. Yeah, every city city has to do that so yeah. <laughs> yeah there's another um a another uh research project that you did where you studied oaks and the number of caterpillars that were on oaks versus uh, uh an introduced uh species of trees like ginkgo or something can you talk about that a little bit because that's also mind-blowing to me like how much of a difference literally one tree in your yard or your farm can make <laughs> and the choice of right. that yeah. Yeah, oaks are a great, a great example of, of producing ecosystem services because they do. There's four major ones that you have that every landscape should be accomplishing. Mm. And one is is uh, creating that and supporting that that food web we talked about. So let's focus on that for a second. Uh, we've got the energy from the sun captured in plant parts. Most vertebrates, most animals do not eat plants directly. They mm-hmm. eat an invertebrate that ate the plant. And it turns out that 
that it is caterpillars that are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So caterpillars become really, really important. So which plants are making the most caterpillars? Hmm. It's oaks. In 84% of the counties in which they occur in North America, they're the number one caterpillar producer. Over 950 species of caterpillars nationwide are supported wow. by oaks. And you can compare it to other native plants like, like tulip trees. Mm -hmm. They support 21. Oh, so oaks um, really, it's not even just that they're native. They're, it's, it's like oaks. It's not just, yeah. <laughs> It's not all native plants are doing that. And then you compare it to ginkgo, ginkgo supporting none, zero. Wow. So yeah, big differences. Oh yeah. It is. It all is. right, so we've, we've, we've moved energy through caterpillars to animals. You also have to manage the watershed. Mm -hmm. Now, oaks have big root systems mm -hmm. and they're holding that topsoil in place. They're dropping leaf litter, which absorbs uh, you know, powerful rainstorms. And it's like a sponge. Mm -hmm. So it soaks up an awful lot of water uh, it's stormwater management is what it really mm -hmm. is. So they're really good at that. Um, they sequester carbon. I mean, this is a big one these days, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it up in their, their tissues, but then also pumping the extra carbon that they, they grab from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. They can take a lot more carbon out of the atmosphere than they can use. So they pump the rest of it into the soil. Our soils are brown or black because of what plant roots have, have deposited in the soils over the eons. Uh, and oaks are really good at doing that because they've got those huge, huge root systems. The only thing they're not great at doing is supporting pollinators because they're wind pollinated. Hmm. But out of those four ecological goals that every landscape has to accomplish, oaks are accomplishing three out of four better than anything else. Wow. Wow. So that's why I like, yeah. why I like them. <laughs> they're not the only good plants, yeah. you know, plenty of native plants and the mm -hmm. prairie plants in the, in most of that corn belt uh, do a wonderful job of carbon sequestration because they have such deep roots. Mm. Um, they're, you know, they're not very tall and you say, right. well, they're not going to sequester much carbon, but they actually do. Uh, and they're really good at watershed management and they're really good at pollen, uh, uh, poll supporting complex pollinators. Um, so, you know, it's not just oaks, yeah. it's a right. lot of, of, of great, <laughs> right. Great but you're here on the East coast with me. So I'm sure oaks, uh, got your attention a little bit more than maybe some prairie grassland kind of stuff. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so let's talk about how in a farm system, you know, I, uh, for the listeners of this podcast in particular are flower farmers and we're usually managing two to five acres. So there's definitely farmers that are much bigger and much smaller in this um, industry that I'm in. Uh, we tend to have fairly diversified farms in terms of lots of flowers and lots of different species. So we're not quite exactly soybean and corn farmers, which is is um, also a, a noble pursuit, but a kind of different um, form of agrarian activity. So, but it, I think a lot of times, myself included, originally, I thought, I'm a sustainable farm. I'm, this is great. I'm doing this thing where I've got flowers and there's lots of bees around and it's, um, I must be really doing good work. But I was still tilling and I was still spraying things and um, causing a lot of disturbance in the ecosystem. And now I've sort of switched my, my pursuit and my perspective to accommodate more of the ecosystem. So one of the things that you talk about in your research and in your writing is this concept that our ecosystems are so fragmented. There's so much um, 
you know, barriers to movement because we've got roads and different things. Or even in the case of a farm, if you till up the soil, you've now disturbed um, what might have been a sort of runway for <laughs> particular creatures to come and go. Um, and how important it is that we don't fragment everything. So do you mind talking a little bit about that fragmentation and, and what we can think about a little bit more in terms of the way we manage our farms? Yeah, David Quammen has a, an excellent analogy between a Persian rug and an ecosystem. Mm. So picture a Persian rug. <clears throat> now chop it up into 71 pieces. That's not 71 Persian rugs. That's mm. 71 rug fragments, mm. none of which are acting like a Persian rug. And that's what we've done to our ecosystems. Um, so that, to me, that visually sums it up right, right away. None of them are functioning as well as when they were together. Mm -hmm. So how do we insert ourselves as as humans with our big human enterprise into uh, these what were you know totally natural ecosystems before? Uh, we can do a whole lot better job of that than we have in the past by choosing the right plants and using more of them. <clears throat> Typically, when we don't know what to do with a piece of land, we make it a lawn, mm -hmm. we plant grass, and in terms of in terms of farms not just in the East Coast and not just in the, but everywhere, the, the new farm ethic and new, maybe the last 15, 20 years has been to get rid of all of the quote weeds mm -hmm. on the side of the road, the side of your, your, your agriculture. And I guess, you know, the advent of, of Roundup Ready products made that possible. We'll just spray right up to the road and then we'll plant grass. Mm -hmm. And that shows that we're, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're, I don't know what it shows. Like professional it shows we're a high status farmer. Yeah. 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 We're good at it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, it was that single act that has devastated the, the monarch. Mm. And we know it's devastated the monarch because we can go to Mexico and count them. Mm. It's devastated everything else too, but they don't, they don't migrate and go to one place. So nobody's counting them. Mm -hmm. But um, the, you know, the 4,000 species of native bees and those weeds we got rid of, uh, for the most part, are n native plants like asters and milkweeds and, and all the things we've we tacked the word weed onto, <laughs> but they're, they're good herbaceous native plants that has supported a ton of biodiversity. We've been farming for hundreds of years without wiping out everything. So there's something that we've changed that has, has uh, really hit biodiversity hard. And that's a big one, just turning every roadside into uh, you know a lawn mm -hmm. patch uh, which is which is supporting nothing right um yeah is you know it's it's totally unnecessary and we've done it everywhere yeah so what could one grower do they could they could put put quote we won't call them weeds let's say <laughs> we'll, we'll put um you know diverse the, flowering plants back yeah i instead of milkweed let's call it monarch's delight there and, you, you know, go i like just, it it's rebranding it's all about rebranding rebrand, exactly <laughs> And yeah. you know, I, I think it's such a tremendous amount of land. Mm -hmm. I think what, what, what farmers do, they, they do manage so much land. They should be compensated for creating ecosystem services mm -hmm. on parts of their farm. So if they put those, quote, weeds back, that's a lot of area. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they're producing a lot of ecosystem services. If they put in prairie strips mm -hmm. right through their, their farmland, they're um, reducing soil erosion by 95%. Hmm. They're reducing uh, water pollution by 90% mm -hmm. 
these things are really effective. Yeah. You can also get CRP uh, funding uh, for, for doing that. Yeah, there's the so, NRCS has, I just talked to an NRCS agent who's, who's through the USDA, who they now have a, a tremendously robust program for helping farmers basically put the weeds back <laughs> yeah. to, to fund. And the, the same that. thing goes for for hedgerows. Yeah. You know, we took out the hedgerows because we had giant machinery and then we took them out just because we felt like taking them out. I mean, <laughs> now a lot of them in recent years have been nothing but autumn olive and, and mm -hmm. all kinds of invasive plants. Yeah, all so the invasives, if, yeah. If you have a hedgerow, it's got to be a native hedgerow or it's just not going to do what we want it to do. But yeah. um, those are things that every individual grower can do without reducing yield one iota. Right. So let me just double check that I understand this. You've just given us permission as farmers to not worry so much about weeds. <laughs> it's actually a good thing to have weeds at your farm. <laughs> well, you know, the reason you worry about weeds is because that plant is going to outcompete your crop and mm -hmm. lower your yield. Mm -hmm. With with Roundup Ready products, you don't have any weeds in the in the crop. <laughs> There's no weeds. But right. why do you kill them outside of the crop? Right. Yeah. That, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah. At my farm, we, we um, farm with living pathways be between the rows, the crops that we're growing, with the goal of, of letting those living pathways be kind of whatever nature wants to live there so that it'll be a mix of, you know, clover and henbit and um, all sorts of, you know, uh, Chickweed, anything that really feels like growing there is fine. We just keep the weeds out of our actual growing beds. But like I like to say that I farm on the wild side where I want to leave the dandelions and the henbit and stuff for the bumblebees in the spring and so on and so forth. And and it's amazing to watch the life flourish back from even just that small step because so many um, small-scale flower farmers like the listeners of the podcast here they tend to farm in black landscape fabric where they just like put landscape fabric over like five acres because <laughs> right. they don't want right. to deal with weeds and in doing yeah. such it just sterilizes the ecosystem and and it it kind of creates a desert i i feel like does that seem yeah. the same to you? Does that make logical sense? <laughs> no, it sure does. It sure does. Yeah. Well, then let's also talk about the idea of creating corridors for wildlife to go through. One of the things that I, I enjoyed in your book was when you talked about the box turtles. So something that you probably don't know about my farm, but listeners do, is my keen love of the eastern box turtle because my farm is in the city of Philadelphia. It's about um, five acres that I'm trying to steward and keep out of development, frankly, is my number one mission. And the driving force behind that determination to fight every possible, you know, assailant that wants to come, and, you know, the city and property taxes and all the things that could uh, diminish this farm is my box turtle population. So we have breeding adults on my farm, and that has really been a driving force for me. And reading about this concept in your book about how the habitat gets fragmented. And even if you have a healthy population of box turtles, it could diminish over time because they don't have a way to move <laughs> away and around. We want them to move, even though I'd like to keep them all safe. 
<laughs> right inside of my flower fields. Um, but they need to move for the sake of breeding and genetics and so forth. So what do you think are some things that our farms can do to create corridors for wildlife to move safely between our farm to the next place? And does that mean we have to pair up with uh, local municipalities or homeowners? What, what do you think is a, a way forward in that capacity? It could mean all of those things, depending on what you are surrounded by. Mm. So, you know, go to Google Earth and look at your farm and see what it would take for a box turtle to get from point A to point B. It's next viable habitat. How far away is that? Mm. What's in between? What would we do in be- to that land in between to uh, allow a box turtle to, to simply move? Now, you've chosen something that's really hard, a box turtle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> because, because they do walk, and they walk right out into the street, and mm-hmm. they walk slowly, mm-hmm. uh, and they get squished. And mm-hmm. we've got streets and roads everywhere, and we're not going to get rid of them. Um, so it's it's it is one of the harder <laughs> biological <laughs> carters to to uh, create um, in the city of Philadelphia. I mean, I'm, I am frankly very surprised you have any box turtles yeah. at this point. So I've got, congratulations. I've got uh, over 20 of them, over 20 adults, um, babies every yeah. year. So it is it's pretty magical. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great. But that would be a fun exercise. Look at Google Maps. Where mm. what is the next closest box turtle population mm-hmm. to you? Mm hmm. Um, I think I'm I'm lucky. I'm surrounded by quite a, a fair amount of wood woodlot. So there's okay. there's a fair okay. amount there. But then I worry about them once they get they get out to the busy streets. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. too about things like toads, they, like the American toad, or or right. any sort right. of snakes and and so forth too. Any ground mm-hmm. crawlers, you know, if there's a way yeah. to help them move yeah. forward in our in our space, yeah. Of course, in, in other places, uh, Great Britain, for example, they've been mm. pretty good at making underpasses mm. under the roads. Mm-hmm. So they have these they have these barriers. If a box turtle is walking along, it hits the barrier and it funnels them towards Ooh. this underpass, and then they can walk right under the road under. and come out on the other side. Same thing for toads. Same thing for salamanders. Wow. Okay. Um, and that's not hard to do when you're building a road. Mm-hmm. It is hard to do after you've built it. After, yeah. I mean, it can be done, but it's just right. a lot more expensive. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got to love nature to do that. If mm-hmm. you say, well, here's a, a $1.5 million project to save a toad, Nobody. most people just <laughs> laugh at you. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about maybe something that's a little easier and that all farms could really start to think about and implement is providing habitat for birds, in particular, you know, the migrating songbirds and and so forth, which are really their populations are plummeting, too, at a, a frightening rate. And I feel like flower farms in particular have a huge capacity to assist birds. I know at my farm, we are absolutely a landing pad at this point for all the East Coast migrators um, up and down it's really cool to watch you know them come and go and know that they're you know they're on their way um and so farms i think you know there's a lot of potential there so what could we do we plant more hedgerows i assume um put out some water like what do you think a farm could do to to encourage the birds to feel safe to land and rest and hopefully have babies there too (laughs) right well so there's two kinds of birds there's residents and there's migrants Hmm. Uh, migrants are typically neotropical migrants. Most of them are coming from Central or South America. Um, some of them stop around the Philadelphia area, but but many of them keep going and actually breed in the in the you know the far north or the boreal forests of Canada. 
Um, so let's talk about that group first. They they fly typically at night. <clears throat> they, they can go 300 miles in a single night. Oh my and goodness. then around, around 4 a.m., they're, they're tired mm-hmm. uh, and they need to rest. <laughs> but what they really need to do is uh, is gas up. They're out mm-hmm. of gas. They burn up to 50% of their body weight during one of those flights. And when they come down, they have to eat caterpillars mm-hmm. to put that food back on. And the reason I say caterpillars is in the spring when they're migrating, the, the plants haven't made berries yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there uh, help, uh, you know, a lot of native berries are very high in fat and it's good for migrants in the fall, but in the spring, they're not here. Uh, so they really rely heavily on insects in the spring and any plant that makes uh, those insects, particularly those caterpillars is going to help a migrant. So when they come down, they're, they're in places we call stopover sites. Uh, birds have amazing memories. Uh, and a bird that's more than, you know, has done this before will go to the same stopover sites repeatedly. If they, uh, so, so we actually, people study that in, in our department, Jeff Bueller and some others, they'll come down. And if they leave very quickly, it's, they're leaving because there's not enough food there. Mm. It doesn't mean this is a great site. Now I can go. It means there's not enough food here and I'm not, I'm not putting that, that body weight back on. So it's when they stay a day or two okay. uh, or three mm. that uh, it shows it's a really good, good stopover site. So you're right. Your farm in the middle of Philadelphia, there's not many gas up places in the middle <laughs> nope. of Philly. And that's a, that's a great um, addition. But I, if you have room for a single tree on your property, migrants will use it. Okay. If you make that tree a ginkgo, they won't. You, mm-hmm. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. If you make it an oak, there's a lot of things mm-hmm. there. And there's a lot of things in between, too. Black cherry is very high. Native willows are very high in their caterpillar production. Um, uh, birches are high. Uh, so it depends on when the, when the caterpillar, when the migrant is coming through, <clears throat> because um, if they're if they're early migrants, a lot of those leaves haven't come out. Yeah, yet. the caterpillars yeah. aren't out yet either. Yeah. But but an interesting thing that that we have by we I mean scientists I didn't discover it <laughs> um, is that there are a lot of caterpillars on on the trees all winter long. Oh they're, really? There's no leaves on those trees and they're just sitting there, um, hmm. ready to go when the when the leaves burst out. So birds like the yellow yellow crown or golden crown kinglet. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny bird. It's totally insectivorous. It should have migrated, but it doesn't. It stays in the north all winter long. So Bernheim red, look in the in the crops of golden crown kinglets in Maine in January. They're full of caterpillars. Wow. That they have gotten gotten from the local trees. Then those caterpillars are just sitting there all winter long. Huh. Uh, so even though the leaves aren't out there, you say, well, what are the birds getting? There are insects out there okay. when you have the right trees. Okay. So you can help birds, the migrants, and we'll get to the residents in a minute, simply by that that plant choice again, choosing the the right plants. The residents, of course, um, don't migrate, and most of those residents add seeds to their diet during the wintertime. So a chickadee, for example, 50% of its diet becomes the seeds at our bird feeder. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a titmouse and cardinals. All those guys that are staying around during the wintertime eat a lot of seeds, but 50%. 50%. The other 50% is insects and spiders during the wintertime. Okay. So again, you, the, your, your bird feeder helps a lot, but it's mm-hmm. not enough. Right. So, so, yeah. so adding those plants that help the migrants also help the, the, residents. the, uh, the chickadees when they breed. When a okay. chickadee makes a, a nest and it's feeding its babies and that will happen, you know, they'll start 
laying eggs in another week or so. Mm-hmm. And those eggs hatch, they're going to feed them, you know, several hundred caterpillars a day. So that adds up to, you know, 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to mm-hmm. get one clutch of chickadees to the point where they leave the nest. If you it's have are you land, <laughs> land of ginkgo or crepe myrtle or Bradford pear, there right. are no caterpillars right. on those trees. So the yeah. chickadee can't breed. Yeah. Yeah. One of the birds that I love so much at my farm, and I try to encourage other farmers to really think in this this um, perspective is, you know, we have a lot of pests at my farm. There's a lot of pests at any farm. And um, a lot of times it's beetles and, and caterpillars are a big one, um, grasshoppers and so forth. And my best pest control has been birds over the years. Like they are 100 percent the way more effective than any spray or other process that I might use. And my favorite one, my favorite assistant is wrens, house wrens in particular. There's also Carolina wrens, but I have um, put up uh, house wren boxes all around my farm. And so they come back year after year and they just showed up last week and they make me so happy. So, (laughs) But they come and they raise, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but in my research, this is what I read, that um, they raise up to three broods in a season and they're feeding them nothing but bug guts basically (laughs) like you know bugs Uh, and they have to constantly go out there and look for um, the the adults have to go you know forage for the bugs Mm -hmm. to feed the babies Mm -hmm. and then the babies if they're happy in the ecosystems well it seems like the babies stick around and come back every year as well so at this point I have literally an army of house friends (laughs) I don't even know like I I think there's probably uh, 50 or 100 house wrens just running around my farm all the time it's just a a chorus of wren song which is really really lovely and um actually for the listeners of the podcast there's uh in the theme introduction in the in the music that leads out at the end it's uh wren songs so that's why uh, mm-hmm. recorded at my farm because they're just so lovely but that's just a testament to if we as humans as farmers focus on the ecosystem and help it be robust and a good place for birds to live then they in return will help us i mean I mean, that's, I think, the whole idea of, of reciprocity, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you must have bluebirds as well. Oh, yeah. We've got bluebirds right? and yeah. mockingbirds. Um, lots of jays, too, which are kind of, you know, bullies. But <laughs> we've got them all, really. They're bullies, but they're they're eating all of those things as well. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the, the bluebirds, there's a an early grasshopper. It's green. Mm. And they, they will eat a lot of those in the their, really? Their first broods. They also have up to three broods uh, a summer. They do. Oh, I didn't realize that. They, they do. Yeah. Wow. They are competing with your wrens. But... <laughs> That's all right. All are welcome. All are welcome. Do you have any advice for people who maybe don't already have such a, a vibrant um, songbird population that have a farm? Like at my farm, I think it's just mostly because I put the houses out and I don't spray any sort of pesticides <clears> at all <throat> at this point. So I think, you know, the bugs are healthy. Therefore, the birds are healthy. Um, but yeah. any other, Wait. you know. Yeah, you know, you've, you've hit it. The birds you named are tree hole nesters. Mm. And uh, that's their limiting factor. It's it's the lack of of cavities to nest in. So okay. when you put up when you put up a bluebird box or or a wren box, <clears throat> and they'll use the same boxes, um, you're providing that big missing missing hmm. link. That's another thing we don't we we don't tolerate in suburbia, or typically in farms is any any dead woody material. A snag, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a snag. We got to cut it down. Well, an oak snag can last 300 years. Really? There. Oh, my yes. gosh. I did not know 
that. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Now, if it's hanging over your house, I yeah, get that. It's a little but, dangerous. But, but there's plenty of, you know, on your five acres, there's plenty yeah. of places where you can have a tree. Or, you know, if you have a, a white pine uh, and it's in the way, throwing shade or whatever, mm-hmm. rather than cutting it off at the base, limb it up totally and maybe girdle it mm-hmm. and you're creating a snag wow. that that birds will they'll they'll carve out their their little holes yeah. woodpeckers starting with woodpeckers mm-hmm. um and you've created a, a nesting site wow. they're doing that in in texas where they have a lot of loblolly pines okay yep. that get, get really tall and then they build the houses around and yeah. they're just too tall they worry about it so they cut them off about 20 feet up and then they just leave them and wow. you know brown hooded nuthatches make a hole right away yeah right there in people's front yards it's it's great it's cool to doing. watch too like i mean yeah. it's so much more interesting than just a blank landscape we have a lot of um sadly dead oaks on my property i guess just they've aged out maybe over the years it's a very old colonial property from way back when william penn farmed in philadelphia and so they're aging out but um I've just left them standing and I always do worry. I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. They might fall over and hit something, but they're they're kind of in the woodlot, so they're not too bad. But so even a dead standing tree is still a phenomenal source of habitat for all the creatures. Right. Yeah. And and even when that tree does fall over, it's laying on the ground. We call that coarse woody debris. That's the salamander lives under that. Mm. I mean, that's there's a lot of things that are in that tree that provide food. I mean, talk, talk about your wrens. Yeah. They're, they're, they're troglodytes, which means Ooh. they are foraging on the ground for the most part. Mm. And they, they go through those logs, getting a lot of food. Yeah. So. I didn't, I didn't know that's <clears throat> what they did. I also have a bird called a brown thrasher. Um, I, yeah, that's what right. I call it. And they are, is, they yeah. are phenomenally good. I, this is just mostly for listeners to understand. Like I don't spray anything at my farm anymore. I did, you know, five or six years ago, I used organic sprays, but I literally not a single, you know, pesticide of any kind is used in the first year or two it was a little bit overwhelming we'll say (laughs) because the population was pretty um, intense but now there's like zero pest pressure at my farm and one of the biggest pests that I often used to battle was Japanese beetles Um, and since the brown thrashers have moved in um, they're digging and getting the grubs of the beetles and picking them up and and chewing them up and um, between those and I have skunks at my farm which also come in and dig up the grubs Mm -hmm. every night Mm -hmm. and they're all doing an amazing job they're taking they're making my life so easy yeah. <laughs> so it's worth what, it what you've done is build uh, balanced trophic levels you've got mm. the plants they're making insects but now you've got the natural en- enemies that are eating mm. those insects mm. um, and you know japanese beetles it's, it's not a native insect we don't want non-native insects because they because they're here without their natural enemies mm. but japanese beetles are they do eat a lot of things as adults, but as larvae, they are grass specialists. They eat grass mm. roots. Mm. So the reason we got a lot of Japanese beetles because we've got a lot of grass. lot of grass. Yeah, lot of grass. that so adds that's, up. <laughs> that adds up. Yeah. Another reason to reduce the area of lawn you have. Okay, that that's great for for everybody to hear. Not just like, yeah, we should reduce the lawn everywhere, but um, I think there are. Uh, growers that struggle, you know, flower farmers that struggle with a lot of Japanese beetle pressure. And maybe it's because they're right next to a giant lawn or, you know, something that uh, is habitat for them. It's hard not to be right next to a giant lawn. We (laughs) have over 40 million acres of lawn in this country, which is the size of New England. 40 million acres. And that's a 2005 statistic. Yeah. So, you know, it's more than that. And does that count like 
golf courses? Because I always think they're like yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's everything. It's okay. everything. <laughs> Actually, we we have two million acres of golf courses, which is I think that figures right. It's we have an area bigger than Delaware and Rhode Island combined in golf courses. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> That I, I well, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because I had a lot to say about golf courses, but I'm just going to hold tight there. So, but um, to go back to farms and bird habitat and building uh, the the levels, so to speak, I'm sure this has also a lot to do with canopy levels, like having things lower to the ground, taller, mid canopy. You know, like do you do you have anything you know advice on how to 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 think about that at our farms as we're planting? Yeah, that's called a layered landscape. You don't just have, you know, when you have no trees, then you have one layer, a ground layer. Mm -hmm. But most people put a tree in, then you've got a canopy layer and the ground layer with nothing in between, Mm. which is not not what the eastern deciduous forest looks like. You've got understory trees, you've got shrubs, then you've got, you know, ground cover, and then you've got leaf litter under that. And each one of those layers holds uh, or supports an awful lot of things and you bring up a good point so we want to have all these these caterpillars around and they're they're basically moths Hmm. that's the you know the larval stage of moths as opposed to butterflies butterflies really aren't contributing that much it's the moths so how do we keep them around well if they're developing as caterpillars up in the leaves of your trees Mm -hmm. and by the way you won't notice that because if you Take 10 steps back from your tree, all your insect problems disappear. You won't notice any damage at all. (laughs) Well, most of those caterpillars don't complete their development on the tree. They drop from the tree and they Hmm. wiggle underneath the ground and pupate. Or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that's under the tree. So make sure there's leaf litter under Mm -hmm. the tree and make sure there's, I call them, uh, you know, soft landing sites. It's really a place where the mower is not going to go, where you're not going to walk. It's much better for the tree, um, and it it provides what it does is is make sure that you don't have compacted soil, so those mm-hmm. caterpillars can get underground. And then the survivorship of what developed on the tree will be much higher, uh, and you'll ha- you'll be able to complete the life cycle. Right. Also, when you're leaving that leaf litter on the ground under the tree, you're allowing the nutrients that that tree needs in future years. Mm. All the things that live in the ground are detritivores. They're breaking down those leaves and returning the nutrients to the soil. When we continuously rake it away or burn it or whatever we do with it, um, no wonder our trees don't live as long as they're yeah. supposed to. We've been starving them from the time they're they're born. Yeah. Uh, and then to have to add fertilizer, we never do it right. We typically <laughs> over-fertilize, uh, and that can kill a tree too. So it's much better to have a, a, a closed nutrient cycle where um, what they use that year, they return to the soil. And you can do that by putting big beds under your trees. It doesn't have to okay. be a messy, you know, a right. messy situation. Right. And 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 a green ground cover is great. Okay. So, you know, a leaf, leaf litter is okay, yeah. but... Um, Put, put wild ginger under there, put may apples, okay. put foam flowers, put, yeah. put the ferns, all of those things yeah. have leaf litter underneath them and they create a, a wonderful habitat yeah. underneath your trees. Okay. And then out in where it's not trees and we're farming <laughs> out in an open field, we should grow um, some shorter plants, some shorter crops, and then maybe aim for like some mid-sized shrubbery and then um, anything, you know, kind of just think about layers, scales up and down and just different creatures want to be at different heights, essentially. Sure. It's, yeah, it's it's an 
it's a niche mm-hmm. and you can either take advantage of that right or not so if right. you have shrubs you're taking advantage of you know four or five feet of space that otherwise there's nothing in nothing there yeah um, just and, avoid you know, those shrubs are probably going to you know, like a viburnum dentatum is going to flower it's going to support support pollinators it's going to make really valuable berries for the birds in the fall mm-hmm. birds in the fall want high fat berries because that fuels their migration or they're going to overwinter and they want high fat berries to get the fat for the, for the winter time. Virginia creeper, believe hmm. it or not, is a really, really good native plant. <laughs> yeah. It does not strangle, you know, girdle your trees and pull right. them down. It makes those valuable berries. It supports a lot of insects. It's a great pollinator plant, even though its flowers are small and inconspicuous. Right. So these are all things that can build that, that right. three-dimensional landscape. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's something that's worth thinking about as um, producers, you know, farmers. Uh, it, it's much more convenient to have a very homogenous, uh, standardized, uniform space. But that is convenient for us and not really convenient at all for the ecosystem and how we need to move forward. If we if we have too perfect of a farm, essentially, we're just going to fight to keep that perfection. And by perfect, I mean perfect by human standards, <laughs> not perfect by the ecosystem standards. So it would make our jobs harder. We're fighting a battle that we're never going to win. And instead, maybe just think a little bit about how to farm more naturally, essentially. And I would argue that that, that- um, uniformness you're talking about is is really just an aesthetic value. Yeah, yeah. It's the convenience, eh, maybe a little bit, <laughs> but not much. And then the 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 inconvenience of having to then control the problems that you created, mm-hmm. you know, with the sprays and with the fertilizer and with all the things that that we've done for so long, we think they're absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They're not. <laughs> um, then that's not very convenient in in my view. So. Yeah. Changing our aesthetic expectations would be one way to uh, yeah. to go. Yeah. You know, I want I want I want the culture to change to the point where the person who is creating ecosystem services on their land, wherever they are, that's the high status guy. Mm. The guy with the giant three acre lawn <laughs> that is totally a deadscape. Right. That's going to be the social pariah because right. because. There's so many of us on this planet, (laughs) you know, people don't want to talk about, but we're over the carrying capacity of the planet. We've got to raise the carrying capacity by putting those plants back Mm. Um, because right now we're existing by taking everything else's resources. We're existing by wiping out the natural world that supports us. Mm. That's not a long-term option. It really it's isn't. Not. Yeah. So, so, and, and to do that because we feel neater and safer, eh, those aren't good reasons. We, yeah. we need, we need to use our superior intellect to realize <laughs> that um, there are other, there really are sustainable ways. Yeah. And most of us are not following them. Yeah. In, in your book, one of the things that uh, was um, enlightening to me, I guess that's the right word I'm looking for here, is I, I've long disliked the the suburban lot of just a blank uh, landscape, very tidy and so forth. That has never been my aesthetic. 
And I always wondered why. Why do we? Why do we even do this? And then in your book, you you maybe don't even say it outright, but it's definitely implied. There is that it was a safety mechanism for us when for humans when back in the day, like we're talking, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, there could have been a bear or a cougar in the tall trees and the shrubby stuff. Um, so you cleared as much of the space around your home as possible, so nothing could creep up on you, basically. <laughs> and I guess that's just yeah. embedded in our brains. But that was before guns and and I don't know cars that can outrun bears and you know, like we have so many more tools now. And frankly, there just are no bears and cougars, generally speaking, that are going to come up on us. So it doesn't hurt to have the the dense vegetation come right up to your front door or right up to the barn door if you're on a farm. Like there's no there's no danger there anymore. But I guess that's yeah. where that first came to be you know <laughs> yeah and it it's not hundreds of years ago it's millions of years ago yeah. <laughs> i mean we we you know we evolved in the the plains of africa yeah. and there really were a lot of predators out there yeah. and if we were in a we could stand up and look over the grass and there were a few trees around it we could climb quickly quickly that mm -hmm. savanna-like landscape um allowed us to spot our enemies and it wasn't just animals. It was hmm. other people. Oh, too. other people. And killing each other for a long, long time. <laughs> That's true. Um, so that, yeah, it's really ingrained us to feel safer in a situation like that. But yeah. but it's true. We, you know, those are, those days are gone. Yeah, they don't serve <laughs> so, us anymore. That mentality yeah, doesn't they don't serve us. us. It's going to just kill us instead of save us at this point. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a little overwhelming to think about, but I think just conversations like this, just having direct conversations about it instead of trying to make people feel nice um, in some capacity uh, is really, really helpful. So, okay, talk to me or talk to the you know listeners about exactly what are some of the tangible steps that they could do to help, you know, to help rebuild ecosystems right on their farm. Okay, well, I always get back to rebuilding insect populations, mm. and I know that's, you know, that doesn't <laughs> seem logical for a, for a farmer, but... Well, no, more more insects are better. There's so many beneficial insects. There's really no bad guys. There are. It's most just out of, of the, balance. <laughs> yeah, most of the insects that are out there, you've got the caterpillars, but you've got a ton of things eating those caterpillars, mm -hmm. other insects, before you even get to the birds. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things you can do is watch your light pollution. Hmm. Light oh. that, that security light you have over your barn or what you yeah. have on at night yeah. is one of the major causes of insect decline because um, the moths that lay those eggs that create the caterpillars are attracted to light at night. They go hmm. to those lights and for five or six reasons, they never leave. They you know, right. get picked off by the bat or they, uh, they just sit on the barn door and they get picked up by the birds in the morning or they fly around and, you know, they're just disoriented themselves to yeah. death or <laughs> cook themselves to death on, right. the, on the lamp itself. There's a lot of research showing that light pollution around, around the world is one of the major causes. Okay. So you can put a security, a, a motion sensor on your security light. So it only, only turns on when mm -hmm. the bad man does come. Yeah. Um, or, <laughs> Even easier is to take the white bulb. And if anybody has a mercury vapor bulb, they're the very worst. Get rid of them and put in a yellow bulb or a yellow LED because mm. yellow wavelengths are far less attractive to nocturnal insects than white or bluish wavelengths. Um, so that alone, it would save you 
dollars because right. you know LEDs are a lot more energy efficient. Right. And would you know you'd save millions of insects. Um, wow. If everybody did, I, so I that's would very never easy. have thought of that. Like that's such a simple thing to do. Just literally very turn simple. the light off. <laughs> Just flick the switch. The be light. done with it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that, and then you know, the, the rest of it gets down to to adding, putting plants back where we've taken them away, where it's not going to interfere with your operation. Hmm. And that's that's an individual thing. But you know, for for most homeowners, you've got the big lawn with no trees in it. Mm -hmm. Put some trees in. It's easy. Right. Adding a tree is easy, and plant it when it's small, mm -hmm. because then you'll have a, a. It's cheap, and you will have um, a, a much healthier tree, and it will grow very fast because you haven't trimmed off all its roots to right. plant it, right. which is what you have to do when you put in a big tree. Um, now there is, we do have a universal problem from coast to coast, and that's too many deer. Oh yeah, and so you have to watch your young plantings, and any grower knows this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a fence around your five acres? I do. I have I have very ah. tall, ten foot tall, uh, professional deer fencing because otherwise okay. well, it would well, just be go. blown to the ground. There'd be nothing yeah. left. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that that's that's a serious issue. But, yeah, um, it really is. So I don't have that, but I use individual cages for the okay. plants that yeah. that I don't want to feed the deer. With. Right. And and that that works too. It's you know yeah. it's, it's, mm -hmm. pain, it's a pain in the neck, but it is. Um, it is. Too, too many deer is pain yeah, in the neck. So. It is. <laughs> Don't we know it? And I assume yeah. planting, I know trees are so, so important, but I assume planting things like viburnum dentatum or other large shrubs provide good habitat too. Because at, at flower farm, that's the one thing we really have going for us over other farms is that there are so many things that we can grow as a profitable crop that also essentially fits into this compartment that you're talking about of of needing a, a woody woody plant that produces berries and flowers and and uh, a home <laughs> for other mm -hmm. creatures so large-scale shrubs might be an option as well is that is that it's maybe not as good as an oak but if we put a lot of them in is that uh helping <laughs> Well, no, nothing's as good as it, uh, <laughs> <Right>. but, <laughs> um, but, you know, I talk about, I call these, these really high producers, keystone plants. Oh, okay. Yep. So, so remember the Roman arch, the mm -hmm. keystone is the stone in the middle of the mm -hmm. arch. And if you take that keystone out, the arch collapses. Well, if you take keystone plants out of your landscape, the food web collapses because mm. they're making most of the food. So I, 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 I talk about keystone plants as being the two by fours in your, your, the ecological house that you're building. Right. They're essential. They're holding it up. But you're not through building your house after the keystone plants are there. <laughs> it's still just a framework. And that's where you fill in with all these other plants that so oaks support, you know, over five hundred species of, of caterpillars around here. Viburnum support over a hundred. Wow. It's it's not trivial. Right. Goldenrod. Goldenrod yeah. supports hundred and ten. Wow. And also, it's one of the top plants for the specialist bees around mm. here. When we want pollinators, it's not just the honeybee. Right. We want the native bees. The, you know, we've got almost 4,000 species of native bees in this country. And over a third of them are highly specialized, mm. which means they can only reproduce on the pollen of, of particular plants. So right here around Philadelphia, there it's either 12 or 14 species of native bees that will only reproduce in the pollen of goldenrod. So if you don't have goldenrod, you just wiped out 14 species of bees. Oh my that goodness! Could be on your property. <laughs> wow. Native asters are, mm -hmm. are are right behind it with mm. with 12 or 11 species. Um, 
perennial sunflowers. Mm -hmm. Now, in the far east here, perennial sunflowers are less important. But as soon as you start moving west, they become really important. Hmm. They move up to number one in, in uh, you know, Indiana and in Illinois right. in terms of the number of, of specialist bees. But if you have those three genera, golden, goldenrod and, and asters mm -hmm. and, and uh, helianthus, on your farm that's you get like 44 species of bees that you wouldn't have otherwise that's amazing and and, and those those guys are doing you know they did all the pollination before we brought the honeybee out yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so. exactly do they do they also um i know there's like parasitoid wasps and um other wasps that are predatory do any of those specialist bees do that too or are they more just pollen nectar um, bees is there any anything about that because we as farmers love predatory bees you know because they do so much work for us <laughs> Well, well, let's get our terminology straight here. Okay. Bees, bees are never predators. Oh, they're sorry. herbivores. They're <laughs> they're always going for pollen and nectar. Okay. And, but they're doing the pollination. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Then you've got a, you've got a lot of wasps that are predators, and you've got a lot of parasitic wasps that are parasitoids, but they're still killing their hosts. Okay. And yes, they they go to flowers too because they they need nectar as well right right so your sources of nectar are really important for an on all kinds of, of uh parasitoids that okay. are the major they are killing other insects more than anything else right that's They're what tiny, i noticed <laughs> and we don't see them but they are there yeah so. do you know of any particular plants that are really good for attracting them like in your studies have you come across specific plant species that might be more beneficial these guys are really tiny, mm. so it's going to be it's going to be composites with very tiny okay. flowers. Okay, like goldenrod. <laughs> right. You know, goldenrod is it's a spike <laughs> with a thousand little flowers. Yeah, on it. yeah. Okay, um, but there's a lot of a lot of composites yeah. out there. Yeah, like dill and Queen Anne's lace and things like that are yeah. also composites. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good to know. Um, so okay, so we have keystone plants. We have um, uh, making sure we do have some oaks or some really larger trees to support the beginning of that, um, and then build out from there. What other things might we do and consider at our farms for creating a, a really rich habitat? You know, just the things that we've talked about already, reduce the area of lawn you have. How mm -hmm. much How much lawn do you have and can you cut it in half? Mm -hmm. I'll bet you can. <laughs> and then you can cut it in half the next year too. So. Well, you know, lawn is a cue for care. Yeah. So the lawn you keep should be mowed and, and manicured. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean you have to fertilize it right. because you don't. Right. It looks great from just a few feet away. <laughs> And people don't realize when they put fertilizer on the grass, most of it contains broadleaf herbicides mm. that is killing the, the dandelions and the clover and anything other than grass. And those are, of course, the only things that make lawn worth anything. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So, so you can buy fertilizer without herbicides in it, but you got to read the label. Yeah. You got to make sure you're, right. you're looking at that. Yeah. Um, but, you, but you can have less lawn and still have an immaculate looking landscape. Mm. It's just well planted with other things. And you've used your lawn as uh, uh, Thomas Rainer calls it area rugs instead of wall to wall mm. carpeting. Okay. Yeah. That makes good sense. But it shows that you haven't moved out. You right. know, you, you are still taking <laughs> still care there. of the landscape. <laughs> yep. You are a good citizen. Uh, it so, is from that funny. perspective, lawn's, lawn's a powerful tool. Yeah. Right. That's and I can true. imagine, I, you know, I've never been to your farm, but I can yeah. imagine you've got to walk around. Oh, yeah. Lawn, yep. lawn is a great 
yeah. path to do that because oh, yeah. you can walk on it without killing it. Right. So. Yep. We have a lot of walking aisles. That's for sure. None of it would I consider lawn, but it is alive, grassy stuff that we have to mow mm-hmm. so it doesn't get too tall. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Right. Do you recommend putting in, uh, I always think about water sources in terms of for creatures. So, yes, you know, I have yes. bird baths out for the birds. I really want to put a pond in. I don't have any sort of groundwater at my farm in terms of like a stream or anything. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, these, the, you know, is water super critical to building a good habitat? Is it a bit mean to not include water if you're trying to bring in all this <laughs> life? Well, you know, for, for the birds in particular, um, water is really important hmm. because um, those migrants, they need to drink as yeah, well as, right. <laughs> as uh, and it's interesting, um, bird baths, the way they're typically sold are not very good. Oh, they aren't. Okay. Because, because it's stagnant water. It just sits there. Okay. Birds want moving water. Okay. And this is why a water feature, just a little pump that's circulating that water so it's dripping down making a little bit of noise that's the signal to a bird that it's clean water and that's what they want okay so you know a little stagnant thing that's sitting there pretty soon there's algae growing in it Mm -hmm. and the birds are not very interested in that Mm -hmm. so any any water feature that and you don't want it to be deep Mm because if birds go in over their legs they won't do it because they're you know they don't want they don't <laughs> want to dangerous. go swimming. They, yeah, they want to they want to go wading, but not swimming. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so yeah, water features are are uh, really good. Um, we call them bubblers. So mm-hmm. it's coming up through a rock and bubbling down. The mm-hmm. birds the birds really do love that. If you do dig a pond, you will attract toads mm-hmm. and a number of other things. Make it so that it's permanent water. People say I'm not going to put a pond in because I'll have lots of mosquitoes. Well, if it's permanent water, you will not have lots of mosquitoes because hmm. everything that lives in that pond eats mosquitoes. Right. Okay. Dragonflies, both the adults and the naiads. Okay. Um, predaceous diving beetles. Everything that's in there is eating mosquitoes. Okay. So the mosquitoes do lay in there, but they get clobbered right away. Right. And, and, uh, okay. It's so yeah, ponds are, are. There's a lot of things that yeah. are associated with yeah. ponds, and it's it's fun. Yeah. Oh, it is fun. Do you think in terms of water sources, do we need to have lots of smaller water sources kind of all around a farm if it's a couple acres? Or do you just have like one central pond and that'll serve everybody? Is is there any sort of guide guideline for that? Well, you know, if you have five acres, that's not that much land. Yeah. One one central one would be fine. Okay. Um, okay. And and it also focuses. I mean, nature's a source of entertainment. So so put that water feature so you can look at it at the window. Right. That's true. That would be really and then, nice. Then you get you know you get the the ecosystem service, but you also get entertainment out of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Huh. Now that you've said that, that makes me think I was going to put a pond. You know, kind of further away down the slope from where we kind of are. But now I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll just put it like, you know, uh, 10 yards away from the barn and then we'll just, you know, we'll see things and it'll be fun. So I like that idea. That's a cool, a cool concept. Um, Great. Any other tips for... I don't know, just ways for us to help, you know, what do you think is, yeah. you You are so well, knowledgeable you know, about all of this. <laughs> there's another thing people are doing um, in, in to help the bees, and that is put up bee hotels. Mm-hmm. So 70% of our native bees nest in the ground, but 30% nest in in that coarse woody debris. They, they oh, right. you know, they, mm-hmm. they tunnel into yeah. dead wood. 
or even mud banks. Oh. Um, so providing the ability to do that, if you don't have a, a lot of wood laying around, um, it, they don't have a place to live. Then. Right. So these bee hotels are good, but uh, with one caveat, people love bee hotels and they make giant ones. Mm. So there's 10,000 holes and it's, you know, it's fun to look at, but what that does and the bees will come, they'll use it. But then it puts all the bees in one place. Okay. And if if the predators find it and the diseases find it, and they will, then it takes out all your Wipes bees. them out. So okay. Many smaller bee hotels is far better than one or two big ones. Okay. That's good to know. And you wanna you wanna put them where you know, out of the rain. Okay. So if you do have a barn with an over overhang, yeah. Put it under the overhang. Oh. Um, and because they don't want to be rained on. Okay. Oh, interesting. I never thought about that. I do have a couple small bee hotels, but I never, I didn't know to put them out of the rain. So I will do that now. I'll make a point of it. So yeah, it was really fun this spring. We've seen the blue orchard bees um, oh, come in cool. and that's the first yeah. I've seen those. So, I mean, I'm, they may have been nice. around before, but the first I've uh-huh. been able to witness them. So, yeah, um, nice. so it's a good spot, but um well, this has been really fun, Doug. I hope it inspires listeners to think about their farms as a bigger holistic picture and not just a production space where we need to think mm-hmm. about giving back as much as we take from it. And I think your your books do a wonderful job of illustrating how powerful, you know, we can be if we if we kind of everybody moves forward instead of thinking of our space as farms and our our sort of landowner rights and so forth. Instead, we think about it as an opportunity to stitch the threads together of stewardship and responsibility. And, and we can... Responsibility. <laughs> that, that is the word. I yeah. wanna... Because, you know, all of us, everybody in the planet requires healthy ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So why would we leave the care of those ecosystems just to a few specialists? Mm-hmm. So you know, the way we have it now, we've got a few ecologists, a few conservation biologists. Everybody else has a green light to wreck the planet. That makes no sense. It doesn't. So it's our nest. It's where we live. And we all have a responsibility to care for it. Uh, and the place you're going to care for is where you're living. You're mm-hmm. your little piece of the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's doable. It, it, you know, it's very manageable, but mm-hmm. it is your responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, that is so true. And it is so important that we don't lose that we don't lose perspective perspective or lose hope, um, but also, (laughs) you know, it's such a big picture problem and it can be utterly overwhelming and it can just shut you down if you think about what's happening in, in the whole big picture. But there's so much power in a small farm if all small farms go in this direction and also in home home landscapes, home owner, homeowners. But um, it's just if we can just all do this together, if we can just all think about it a little bit, add a little bit of effort to each of our days as we produce beautiful flowers or whatever the crop is and, and just make tiny steps forward, then it isn't so overwhelming. I mean, it's maybe not the 100 percent answer to the big problem, <laughs> but it is it's a huge piece of the puzzle and i'm i'm excited to feel like there's some hope there for sure yeah, yeah. yeah there's definitely hope definitely. yeah you're welcome and i'm so grateful for your right your writing and your um your research for that so thank you for doing that and and gifting us all with that information so we can have that hope so 
Well, no, thank, thank you, you Doug. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, you, you are a very good writer, by the way. I really enjoy oh. reading your work. So not all scientists can claim to be able to uh, create a narrative instead of just a, a research paper. And you've, you've, you've done it with flying colors. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.